you would grab a Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, where we will begin this period of our study this morning. Matthew chapter 25. It is good to see you this morning. We are glad to have visitors with us. Thank you for being here. We want you to feel welcome, and we want to do what we can. If there is any need that you have or anything that brought you in to uh, our services this morning that we can help you with, we would love to talk to you about that. Please don't leave without letting us know how we can help you, but thank you for being here today. I have a couple of things to say before I get started with my part. Uh, first of all, I want to remind everyone that the uh, adult Bible workshop that we've been planning and talking about for some time is this week. It is Saturday. We're going to be spending, uh, beginning about 9 through mid-afternoon, we're going to be here at the building, and we've invited speakers here to come and lead us in a study of prayer, and we would love for everyone to come. Uh, everyone's invited. There's no registration fee or anything like that. We're all free to come. And uh, it will be a great weekend, a great day uh, to study and really to get to the bottom of prayer. And we have, uh, we have some very challenging topics that I'm glad other preachers have to tackle and not me. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but be, be on the lookout for that and be planning for that on Saturday. I also want to tell the high school and junior high young people, I want to say kids, but no, that's not really fair, uh, high school and junior high young people that we're having our devotional at my house, uh, our house, it's also my family's house, uh, this afternoon at 5 o'clock. Uh, so be there this afternoon at 5 o'clock. We'll, we'll get that kicked off. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. In this section, Jesus has been talking with his disciples about some future events. The destruction of Jerusalem, the day and the hour of his coming, his return. And then he introduces this story and says, This is what the kingdom is like. It's like virgins waiting for the groom. We've been studying this year about what we've called the unstoppable kingdom, the teaching in the New Testament that completes the Old Testament picture of the kingdom of God. And we talked about that in a lot of different ways throughout the year, but over the last couple of months, we've been focusing on the parables of Jesus and how the parables of Jesus are ways Jesus explains this is what the kingdom is like. Because it is a hard concept that is subject to a lot of misunderstanding. And so we've grouped those parables in a few different ways. We've talked about the parables that compare the growth of the kingdom to seed or leaven. We've talked about those that picture the response, like the response we have to a party invitation. We talked last month about how when we receive blessings, Jesus says the kingdom is about paying those blessings forward, not just accepting them, but using them. And I want us to draw our attention to one more class of stories this morning, and that is stories that tell us that the kingdom is about waiting. And so particularly, we're going to focus on this story where we talk about waiting for the groom, and then some other stories that we can also accompany and kind of bunch together to think about how the kingdom has a waiting feature to it. The kingdom comes in stages. And really, that's been true throughout the Bible. I don't think we think about it very often, but there were people waiting for the kingdom when Jesus came. They were waiting. So we have statements like these, Luke 2.25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was in that group of people that were waiting, when is God going to finally fulfill his promises? And he is actually one that got to see those promises fulfilled, at least to see Jesus as a baby. It also says a little later in that chapter, coming up at that very hour, she, this is a woman named Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Then we also have this statement made later in, about Joseph of Arimathea, Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It's likely that those group of disciples John the Baptist made, who became many of them disciples of Jesus, were also among this group of people who were waiting for God to finally fulfill his promises. Sometimes we forget that the Jewish people waited centuries for the Messiah. Waited and waited and waited. They watched their nation get kicked back and forth from Babylon to Persia, from Greece, and the, then the Syrians who descended from the Greeks as the kingdoms were divided onto Rome. Through the Maccabean revolt, through all the troubles of those era, that era, and all of it waiting for what Paul calls the fullness of time. Waiting, waiting. And all of that gives some context to you and me because if we are going to have to wait, we're in really good company because that's really the story of a lot of the Bible, people waiting on God to finally accomplish what God said he would do. So let's think about some of these stories for just a few minutes this morning, how we wait and how that helps us understand what the kingdom is like. First of all, we need to know that we will need endurance. And for that, I want us to look at this story, Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1, the story of the ten virgins. Matthew 25 and verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. And he tells a story about ten virgins waiting for the groom. Now, it was customary in the time of Jesus for the virgins, let's think of them as bridesmaids, they are the attendants to the bride, to leave the bride behind and go meet the groom as he is coming and then lead him to the bride and then lead groom and bride together back to the groom's house. That was the custom in a wedding ceremony like this. So the whole point of these 10 women is to be ready to meet the groom. That is their job. And that's what they're there for. So they are prepared for that. And Jesus says, he divides these ten women into two groups, the wise and the foolish virgins. And that, that is not really a statement, I don't think, about broader things than just in this one instance, in this one situation, they weren't prepared the way they should be. The wise brought oil with their lamps. We're probably talking about a kind of torch that would have a, a, maybe an oil lamp at the top of it. And so you've got a little bit of oil that would help burn, that flame burn. And so they bring extra oil because they know they don't know when the groom is going to come. But the others who are foolish, they're only foolish in this respect. They don't bring oil with their lamps. So, of course, as the story goes, they wait and they wait and they wait. And it says, particularly in verse 5, the groom is delayed. They don't say why. We don't know what happened here. It's not really about why. There's no judgment here. It's just these are the facts and we have to deal with them as they come. And so when finally the cry comes, the groom is coming, the groom is coming. 
they begin to trim their lamps. The idea here is to make them bright enough where they're going to light up the scene so that they can do their job of meeting the groom and everyone can see. And the five foolish ask for oil because they didn't bring any. The five wise say, no, we can't afford to, to spare it. Go get some more. And while they are gone, the groom comes. It is particularly tragic to me that the door was shut. When they finally come in and they are ready to do their work and to, to do their job, they are, they're gone when he comes. They miss him and they come to the door and it's shut. In verse 11, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So Jesus says, verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So in this story, wisdom is about preparation to wait, being ready to wait long term. We will need, as we'll see in a moment, endurance. Now in this story, the groom is the picture of Jesus, and we await his return, his coming, but there is uncertainty because, as he said back in chapter 24, no one knows the day or the hour. Just like the groom, he may be delayed. We have no concept, we have no a way of knowing whether Jesus is going to come now or tomorrow or sometime long after we are dead. So Jesus says, this is wisdom. Watch, watch, because you don't know the day or the hour. And he warns that if we're not prepared, we will be the ones who hear, I don't know you. So you might ask the question, well, what does it mean to be prepared to wait? I mean, what are we talking about here? I don't know what the metaphor for the lamp and the oil and all of this means practically. If you're like me, you want to get down to the brass tacks and say, well, what does this really mean? I think there's a story here that might help us. Jump back a little bit to chapter 24 in Matthew 24 and verse 45. Matthew 24, 45, it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But... If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the faithful and wise servant, Jesus says, is the one who acts as though he knows his master is coming back. He doesn't begin to mistreat his fellow servants. He doesn't shirk his responsibilities. He does everything as if the master's coming back because the master is coming back. So here's what I want you to get from that. This story says there's still work to be done while we wait. This is not just about waiting. It was funny because I was looking for pictures of waiting. You know, I got a guy here waiting on a train. Uh, waiting seems like a really passive thing, right? You just kind of sit there. Nothing's happening because you're just waiting. But endurance is different. Endurance is the idea that we're going to be working. And the waiting is we're just not sure when the work is going to be over, but we're going to keep going as long as it takes. That, I think, is a better picture to understanding what Jesus is getting at, to understand that it is endurance that we need so that we don't just do it for a little while and then quit, but instead we keep going. We remain vigilant despite the passage of time. There is a time when the novelty wears off and commitment is tested. That happens in a marriage. When initially there is great excitement and joy and then there are obstacles and then there is familiarity and there is no more novelty. Instead, the commitment 
is tested. And we have to transition, don't we, from an initial infatuation to something more durable if that marriage is going to survive. And so it is when we wait with endurance for the Lord. There comes a time when it is hard because doubt gnaws at us and people mock us. And we wonder, there is that voice in the back of our heads. We wonder, is this real? Is this true? I'm just not sure. And meanwhile, while those thoughts are going on internally, externally, we have responsibilities, don't we? We have things we have to take care of in our world, in our spiritual lives, in our families. And all the time there is work and work and work. We are pushing and grinding and going. Internally there is a struggle. Externally there is exhaustion. And the question comes, wouldn't it be easier to just kind of let it go? I mean, after all, what assurances do we really have that this is true and is going to happen? Jesus says... We need endurance. Watch, because you don't know when the Lord will return. And so it is. That's what the kingdom is like. Still we keep the light on. Still we keep serving. Still we keep showing love to other people. Still we pour over those promises we've received, waiting for the time when God acts to fulfill them. Still we keep vigil for the return of Jesus. Still we wait for the groom. That's what the kingdom is like, and we will need endurance. Let's go now to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. In this story, I want to focus on the idea that we will give account. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read beginning in verse 11. It's a rather lengthy story, so I hope you'll read with me. Luke 11, Luke 19, verse 11, down to verse 27. Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now I want to begin by pointing out that this story is prompted by a misunderstanding. In verse 11, he says that he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So whatever we may take from the, the parable of the minas, it is intended to teach us that the kingdom is not going to appear immediately in the context that they are thinking. It is about a delay. Now, this story, I think you could probably notice, it's very similar to the story of the, the talents. But 
there are some very important differences, especially given the kingdom motif we're working with. For one, it says in verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So he's going away to receive a kingdom. And you engage in business, you trade what I'm giving you, my money, until I come back. So it adds an interesting wrinkle to me because if he's going away to receive a kingdom, then my effort in the meantime is about how much I really believe he's going to get a kingdom. Do I have confidence in that master that he's going to get the kingdom and then come back? Or do I think, oh, I know that guy. There's no way he's getting a kingdom. So you see, it's more about faith in the man than perhaps in the parable of the talents. Their confidence is shown by how they act in the meanwhile. So Jesus' story glosses right over that interim time that we're really focusing on, but he skips to what happens when the nobleman returns with the kingdom. Verse 15, when he returned having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they have gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So I want you to notice he shows his faithfulness, faithfulness, his credibility, his trustworthiness by his behavior in the, the waiting period, the interim so there is a very real sense in which this is a parable intended to teach something to you and me. We are in the waiting period in which we await the next stages of the kingdom. And so what we do now is what will matter when that stage comes to pass. Verse 20. Verse 20, you see the other man. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know, now that, you know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And am I coming? I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. Give it to the one who has 10 mina. So this man shows his laziness, and his unfaithfulness by his decisions in the interim. He refuses to use what he's been giving, given in the anticipation of the master. So here is what I want to stress. That is, as we wait for the return of Jesus, we will give account for what we do in the in-between time. And this is part of how we show our faith that Jesus is coming back and our endurance. So let me spell that out as best I know how, we use our time and we use our energy and we use our gifts and we use our relationships and we use our personality traits. We use all that we've been given in anticipation of Jesus returning and calling us to account. We are, the word is stewards. Stewards are given something, but only temporarily. They're given something, and then there comes a point in which the steward has to say, here is what I did with your stuff. You have it back. It's yours and here is my account. I don't know how often we have to truly give account of ourselves. There may be some situations in your job, for example, where you, you have to give account, you know, how did you spend company money? You have to say, well, this is what I did. This is where I went. But it is not common for us, particularly in the land that we live in, the freedoms that we enjoy as, as citizens of this country, 
We, we don't give account for our movements, our decisions very often, do we? In fact, it seems to me that that lack of accountability often makes people reluctant to join a local church. I don't want people to call me to account. I don't want to have to answer for things. And yet this is the promise Jesus is making. We will give account for how we spend what we've been given in the time in which we're waiting. And I think that gives us a healthy perspective. Someday, we're going to lay down our keys. Someday, our possessions are going to be divvied up among other people. Someday, there will be nothing that even has our name on it except perhaps a tombstone. Someday, all that's going to matter is not what I have, not what a special person I was, not all the things I said. What's going to matter is how did I use God's blessings to show I believe that someday I'm going to stand before him, that I'm going to give account for what I did. These things are not mine. My time and my energy and my gifts are not mine. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like. Learning to live in the in-between time as if the end is imminent. Because it is. We will give account. And I want to look at one last story in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. These stories add a little bit of a different wrinkle to the idea of waiting and that Jesus is not yet ready to return. We're going to read beginning in Matthew 13 and verse 24. Matthew 13 and verse 24. This is a story that has two parts to it. One is the story and then one is the explanation. Matthew 13 and verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. that gather the wheat into my barn." Verse 36 then begins the explanation. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So what I want to stress from this is that as we wait for Jesus, we will live among the evil. So the story is pretty simple. The man sows good seed in his field. It's wheat. And then an enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. And there's a very interesting kind of weed that looks almost exactly like wheat. It's still around today. And you, you can't tell the difference until they grow up pretty tall. Okay, so, so there is a time period where they all look good, and then all of a sudden there's a time period where you realize there's a problem. So in this story, 
they begin to realize, oh, we've got weeds in the middle of our wheat. And there is a, a key question in the story where the servants say, do you want us to go pull them up? And the master says, no, no. He says this specifically, look at verse 29, no less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. Both of them are going to grow together until the end, and at harvest there will be the separation. We're not separating before harvest time. That's what the master says. And Jesus specifies in his explanation, the field is the world, and you've got the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one together in the world, and they're not going to be separated until the end of the age. That's when the reapers, the angels, will come and separate in the final separation, what we call the judgment. Let both grow together. Let both grow together. Do you realize that explains our situation? you realize that explains the tension that you and I feel? That we live in a world that is full of evil people, and yet we're trying not to be evil? Let both grow together. Jesus is saying, that's what the kingdom is like. It is going to be like wheat surrounded by weeds. We're going to have to live among evil people. And so Jesus says things that indicate the posture we have toward the world. He says things like, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise in that you know that the world can hurt you, but innocent because you know that the world can taint you. Be careful. Jesus is teaching us that you have to have an influence on the world, that you be salt of the earth and light to the world. Because we all know, and Scripture tells us repeatedly, sometimes the world influences us toward its ways. And Jesus says, no, you need to be influencing it toward my way. And yet that tension is part of let both grow together until the harvest. We will live among the evil in that in-between time where we wait for the end of the age. We have to take care to remain pure, pure in our motives, pure in our language, pure in our habits, pure in our worldview, because we are surrounded by people who do not have the allegiance that we do, who are not waiting the way we are waiting. And particularly, don't you have that feeling sometimes? Like you feel almost overwhelmed by evil? I don't know if you guys remember when we studied the book of Revelation, but Revelation is written very much in that way where the beast rises and it says the whole world worships the beast and the intimidation that comes and the pressure to compromise that comes when you are surrounded by people who don't like you or what you believe. Let both grow together until the harvest. Jesus says that's what the kingdom is going to be like until the age ends. I like to think of it as God having little cells of his people infiltrating enemy territory. And he's not calling us out until the mission is over and he decides it's time. But I want to stress, if we're living among the evil, we're never going to be completely at ease. So we feel like pilgrims. We feel like we don't belong in the land in which we live. We feel like there is 
attention. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom is like. I'd like for you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. And I think this will be a good place for us to close our thoughts. I said earlier that the kingdom from the very beginning has advanced in stages. And because of that, there is always a waiting. We know that something better is coming, but, but it's not yet. And so people live with the tension of what they know is coming, but what's not yet here. And so do we. But I think it is important for us to recognize that sometimes that's hard and that Jesus teaches us about this to give us the strength to endure. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers, he says, will come. Scoffers who sow seeds of doubt among God's people. What makes you think Jesus is really coming back? I mean, where is your evidence? Everything's the same as it's always been. Thousands of years have passed. Where is Jesus? And they cast doubt. And Peter reaffirms the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It's not as though there's going to be a bunch of signs and we say, okay, I can be reassured because all these signs are taking place. He says, no, it will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, down in verse 10. So, we need to understand that our duty is to keep the light on for Jesus, to keep vigil, to endure, to live as though we know we'll give account, and to maintain faithful witness among evil people. Sometimes people are going to complain and scoff at us because it's been a long time, but we wait in faith. And sometimes people are going to tell us to quit worrying about Jesus. He's never coming back. Quit trying to maintain faithfulness to his words. That's not going to work, but we wait in faith. And sometimes people are going to tell us it doesn't matter what you live or what you do, but we wait in faith. And sometimes we're going to be discouraged by the things around us, the evil we see, the, the difficulties in our own hearts and our own lives. We want there to be some reprieve from the evil around us, but we don't see anything, and yet we wait in faith. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like. It's like waiting for the groom. He's coming, but we don't know when. And the question is, will we be ready when he comes? So I want to ask you the question this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus. How are you waiting? How are these promises to you? This is the next step, God says, in what he is going to do. And the question is, are you prepared for that? How are you living in the between time? Are there changes you need to make this morning to put away sin and to renew your commitment and your faithfulness to Jesus? Or is there someone here who is not yet a disciple of Jesus? who is ready to come and to give their lives over to him and to be baptized into Christ, have their sins washed away and begin that new walk. We would love nothing more than to help you be right with God. If there is any need that you have, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.